Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Apparently, there is this thing called being an ultra-marathoner. This is something that is entirely foreign to me uh, because running uh, is uh, unbiblical. Uh, The Bible says, the Bible says that the wicked run when no one chases them. And so I am secure enough in my place in Christ that I don't need to do that. However, I'm told that ultra marathons are a thing, that this is something that people do. Uh, And in fact, I was reading this week about a particular ultra marathoner. His name was was Charlie Engel. And Charlie Engel was a uh, recovering drug addict. uh, And one of the ways that he got clean was by getting into ultra marathons. And he decided that these long races, these these hundreds of mile races over the course of days, things that like most of us would struggle to bike, he would run. And so as he did that, he decided to use this as a platform to raise awareness uh, for different issues, particularly in his case, mental health and addiction. And so he began to do these incredible races. One in particular was he ran across the Sahara Desert. And they took a film crew with him. It was, it was a whole big thing. And as he did it, he was raising awareness and money for a charity. Well, something interesting happened as he ran across the Sahara. Uh, a particular agent uh, in the FBI got interested in how could someone fund this trip? How could someone fund this sort of outlandish travel to Africa, take a film crew with you, and all of this? And so they began to investigate Charlie Engel. In the end, Charlie Engel ended up spending 16 months in federal prison for mortgage fraud after the investigation started because somebody wondered how he did this. Now you ask, what exactly did he do at mortgage fraud? Well, in 2008, at the height of the subprime crisis, he exaggerated his income so he could get a better rate on his loan. That's it. 16 months in jail for exaggerating his income to get a better loan rate. And this all came about because somebody wondered how he could afford to run across the Sahara for charity. It really begs the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Right Here this guy was, trying to raise money for charity. Somebody says, I don't know, I don't buy it. Something's got to be sketchy with this guy. And they found out that he added a little $20,000 on his mortgage form. And he spent 16 months in jail for it. And that's a question we ask all the time, isn't it? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? But I think, I think the inverse of that question is actually more interesting. Why do good things happen to bad people? Have you ever thought about that side of the question? Whether or not you've articulated it, I think you have. Think about it this way. When, when, when that person at work gets promoted 
and you do not. What is your response? Her? Him? That, that's the guy that's getting, that's the girl that's getting promoted? They're, they're a terrible person. Here I am, a good person, and I'm not getting promoted, and they are. How come that happens to them? How, how come that person is a terrible parent, and yet their kids are angels? Why is this like this? I am trying my best to parent my kids for Jesus, and you know them, and I often look over at them and wonder, why do good things happen to bad people? How is it, how is it that that person, that that person is able to find relationships and love so easy, and you can't? See, we are absolutely asking ourselves the question, why do good things happen to bad people all the time in our head? But at the end of the day, what, what that idea boils down to, what the, what the sort of kernel of the idea of why do good things happen to bad people is in our mind, is our idea of blessing and the good life. What we're upset about, when we see bad people getting good things, is that we want the good life. And they seem to be getting the good life, and I seem to not be getting the good life. They, they seem to be the ones who are getting blessing, and I'm not the one who is getting blessing. And so what happens is, we, we, we begin to ask ourselves these questions, why are these blessings, why is the good life coming to this bad person, and how do my actions, how does all of the good things that I do, how does all of that, play in? Well, fortunately, we're not alone in asking these sort of questions. It's not just you and I who ask the questions, why do good things happen to bad people? Rather, we find in the Psalms this exact question being asked. Because sometimes we like to think of the book of Psalms in our mind, we just think of it as like a lot of like worship music. And we maybe think of it as just like a cheesy version of Hallelujah 150 different ways. Maybe throw in the, the, the Lord is my shepherd part. But other than that, we don't think much about the Psalms. Or if we do, we think it's kind of repetitive. But what we find in the book of Psalms is every human emotion expressed and taken to God. We find in the book of Psalms joy, jubilation. But we also find sadness and lament. We find prayers of thanksgiving for what God has done, and we also find prayers that are against the enemies. We find questions before God like we have this morning. And so what I want to do is read a psalm to you that answers and that exposes this exact question. Why do good things happen to bad people? So if you would, stand with me as I read Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven. This is a good line here. And their tongue struts throughout the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands and innocent. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. And you put to an end everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell you or tell of all your works. City Church, this is a word of God written nearly 2,500 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So we wonder why others are blessed and we are not. We wonder why that is happening. When we wonder why other people get blessings and we do not, we're making a critical mistake. What we're doing is we're assuming the wrong idea about what blessing is. And when we assume this wrong idea about what blessing is, it distorts our entire view of reality. Because if blessing is just the stuff, if blessing is just this, these things that you can hold and have, and that's what we're chasing. We are missing the point of what God says blessing is. And that's, that's what this psalm shows us. You see, it starts out with Asaph kind of saying, yeah, 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 God is good. Okay? We all know this. This is a thing that they would say in the worship uh, in ancient Israel all the time, that God is good. But he says, but here's my problem. I struggle to believe that. How many times have you known something to be true in the Bible and struggled to believe it? I think most of us would admit that. But I think what's interesting about this psalm, what's interesting about what's going on here, is that Asaph not only says, I struggle to believe what is true about God, but he takes that to God and tells him why. And starts telling God, here's why I'm struggling with what you say. You say that you are good. We just sang in a song, 
You are good. But then I look around the world. I look around my life and the lives of others. And here's what I see. I see wicked people getting shalom. When he says there, I see the prosperity of the wicked. He's, he's using this word shalom, which is a, a word in the Old Testament that is absolutely jam-packed with meaning. It is the peace of God. It is the word that describes what Adam and Eve felt in the Garden of Eden before sin. It is, it is what God is restoring to this earth. It's what sin has broken, and now God is restoring. It is that, that peace. But what Asaph sees is not his peace, is that the wicked people around him, they're the ones who get that sort of peace. And he says, wait a minute. Hold the phone. Stop. How come, if you're so good, God, all of those bad people are getting all of the good things? And he starts to list it, right? I mean, there's, there's phrases in there that, like, they are fat and sleek, right? Not sure how those things go together, uh, but I'm very interested in finding out one day, right? He says that they're healthy, they're carefree, they're proud, and their actions seem to have no consequence. I love that phrase that I pointed out there. Their tongue struts throughout the earth. You ever known somebody like that? Who just, who's just, they ran their mouth and it caused problems for everyone else besides them. And Asaph looks around and goes, they've got the good health. They've got all the money. They don't have any consequences to their, their life is easy. Their life is good and peaceful. In fact, he says it goes so far as that they even turn to God and say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? You think about that. That is, in so many ways, the height of wickedness. Not just that God doesn't know what I'm doing. Not just that God doesn't care what I'm doing. But rather, what is God going to do about it? It is if these people who seem to be the ones who have peace, who have this shalom, they're the ones who are turning to God and saying, come at me, bro. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to do whatever I want, and you're not going to do anything at all. Come at me. Now, most of us would would never say that out loud, but how quick are we to want to say, well, God doesn't care about the things that I do in private. As long as I'm not hurting another person, as long as it's just me, this isn't a big deal. In so many ways, that's the same thing. And Asaph looks around, and he sees those people always at ease, always increasing in riches. It's not hard for most of us to think of a wicked person that we can describe that way always at ease, always increasing in riches, never having any problems. And I'm not talking about big, famous people that we'd all know. No, I think most of us have somebody we know personally who we could fill in that box with. Who we kind of look at them, whether they're somebody we know from work or somebody who we went to school with, who we see on social media now, whether it's somebody that we we know from around our neighborhood or our building, wherever we sort of find that we know these people that are always at ease, 
always increasing in wealth, never doing the right thing. Can you, can you feel how upset Asaph is with this? One of the things that Psalms are meant to do is they're meant to be evocative. They're meant to make us feel things. And in this Psalm in particular, one of the things that we're supposed to feel is we're supposed to go, yeah, yeah, I know this. What, what, what's, yeah. Why is that, God? I, that, that person, I know that person. Asaph is expressing that anger and that frustration. And then he takes the next step, which is the same step we take in our heart. Not only does that person always have it easy, not only does that person always have everything luck into their lap, but look at me. It's been all in vain that I have kept my heart pure. Look at me, Jesus. Look at all of the things I've done for you, and apparently they're meaningless. Look at what I've sacrificed for you, Jesus. You don't seem to care how much I have given up for you, do you? They get all the good things. I get nothing but rebuked every morning. They get all of the nice stuff, and I get yelled at. They get promoted, I get a pay cut. And I'm the one over here, Jesus, trying to do the right thing. You know, it reminds me so much of, of the prodigal sons. And when we think about the story of the prodigal sons, we often think about the one who goes away and who wastes his father money, who gambles it away, uh, who spends it on illicit things, and then comes back begging for his father's forgiveness. But that second brother... That second brother is probably more like Asaph in this story. Because what happened? They throw a party for the prodigal son who returns. They throw, they kill the fatted calf and say, everybody come, we're cooking steaks and brisket. Let's go. And what's the older brother doing when that happens? He's standing outside with his arms crossed. And the dad comes out and says, son, we're having a party. You should come in. And what does the older brother say? For the past 15 years, I have worked day and night for you. And you never so much as killed a lamb for me. You never invited my friends over for a party. And yet this guy, this guy comes back home. This guy shows back up having squandered the money. And you kill a calf. You, you kill, you kill steak for this guy. Mm-mm. No. I'm not going to that part. How many times does that describe us? We look around at other people. We see the ways that we think that they are being blessed. And then we look at our own lives and go, I'm a morally better person than them. I should be getting that blessing. I'm the one who should be doing this. I, I, I do this. I Look... I look around at the list of things that I have done, the ways that I have, have done my best to plant a church, and then I look at my other friend who have planted churches and go, how come that guy got a core group to start with that was bigger than my church is after three years? What's with that, Jesus? Jesus, how come those people are growing at incredible? What, why can't I have that? Dude, that dude's got like all the money he needs ever in his life. Jesus
So we all feel this. And at the end of the day, this thing that we're feeling, this thing that other people who we think are being blessed, what, what it stirs in us is envy. That's what you call this. When they have what you think you deserve, it's envy. So how do we deal with our envy? How do we deal with always wanting to know what's going on with somebody else? How do we overcome it? You know, it's interesting. Um, there was a short time where the comedian Louis C.K. had a TV show. And in the TV show, he's a dad and he's, he's raising his kids. And, and he has a situation happen that is, that is common uh, to anybody who's ever been a parent. The two kids are eating dinner. One of them finishes sooner. And the one who finishes sooner says, hey, can I go get a treat? And she takes the last drumstick out of the freezer. And she gets ice cream. And the other daughter comes to him and says, hey, dad, can I get a drumstick? No, I'm sorry. We don't, we don't have any more. You just forgot the last one. Well, that's not fair. He's like, I, I can't do anything about that. Okay? There was one left. She ate it. I can't make drumsticks appear. I mean, we, you've, if you have more than one child, you have had this argument with at least one of your children. I'm sorry. That was the last one. There's no more. I can't fix that. And he tells his daughter in this, in this scene, look, you should never worry about what anybody else has. Don't worry about what they have. Just worry about yourself. Now, here's the problem. If we take that as our philosophy of envy, If we just say, you know what, I'm going to pretend that no one else exists. I'm just going to worry about myself. I'm just going to focus on myself. Guess what happens? Guess the, let me take a guess. When you say, I'm just not going to worry about anybody else, what happens in your heart? You begin to look at your life and say, yeah, but I don't have enough. It's fine they don't have their stuff, but I want more. I don't have enough. You see, our hearts are prone over and over again. We need something else to capture the attention of our hearts, to turn our imagination, to turn our our desires away from just what other people have and from the things that I don't have. And what's interesting is Asaph experiences exactly that. And it's really abrupt in this psalm. He goes from the wicked are always at ease. Everything is always easy for them. And I have kept my heart in vain. And then all of a sudden, he flips. It's so quick. He says, I I was going to try to understand this, but even trying to understand it felt wearisome until, until I went into the temple. Until... I went in to God's sanctuary and worshipped. And it was that worship that changed his heart. Which is interesting because most of us oftentimes think of church as something we do every Sunday. Or in St. Pete culture, something we do once or twice a month. And it's just a little something that, you know, okay, yeah, I'll go do my Jesus thing. I'll hear a nice message. That'll be good. But for Asaph, there was something more going on there. You see, Asaph was experiencing something 
more life-changing than just checking off the box of attendance. What Asaph saw in the temple was the story of his life and of God's world. Because as you entered the temple, you would experience and see the beauty of who God was. But you wouldn't just see the beauty of who God was. You would see the price of sin as they were making sacrifices throughout the day. And those sacrifices didn't just remind him that our sin is costly, but they also pointed him ahead that one day these are going to stop because one day the thing that these are a shadow of is going to become real. And then he experienced being sent out at the same time. You know, it's interesting that the way and the thing that he experienced, the story of God's redemptive plan, of God's covenanting with us sinners, is not just the story that he saw in the temple, but it's the story that we tell every week here at City Church through the order of our worship. The reason why we do things like confess our sins is that we need to be reminded of our sins. The reason why we sing songs about the beauty of God is that we need to be reminded of the beauty of God that we fall short. The reason why we lift up Jesus and we talk so much and make such a big deal about Jesus is because the goodness of his redemption to sinners like us. And then we experience at the height of this, the invitation as sons and daughters to God's table, (coughs) to fellowship and communion with him. And then once we've experienced all of that, we are sent out by God to be his hands and feet in the city of St. Petersburg. That's, that's the shape of how our worship service goes. And the reason why we do that week after week, the reason why that shape stays so similar, and while we might do a different confession of sin, and while we might say the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed, but the reason why that shape stays the same is because that sort of worship transforms us. That sort of worship is the worship that Asaph experienced when he said, you know what? Wait a minute. My life shouldn't be filled and and shaped by envy. There is another story that my life is a part of. There is another thing that is going on here. You see, as we begin to look at this, we begin to see that worship is not just entertainment, but rather each week worship recalibrates our heart. It is as if we go out each week and come back and we need a new prescription for our glasses. And worship every week Demands that we come in and say, one or two. Okay, now, this one or that one. Okay? Because we constantly need to be recalibrated. You know, it's funny. um, I remember when smartphones needed to be updated uh, manually. Remember remember back in the, the old days of smartphones? You know, when you had to go in and manually, like, click a button that said, please update my phone right now. And you had to remember before you went to bed. Or maybe you were real nerdy like me, and you were sitting there on Apple's website waiting to download the newest iTunes software so your phone, so you could plug it in and wait the three hours for it to update through that cord with the big wide 
end on it. I mean, you know, this thing, right? But now what happened? We go to bed and our phone automatically goes, hey, I'm plugged in and there's a new operating system available. Let me just go out and automatically update that. Let me recalibrate the phone automatically. Here's the thing. Your heart and my heart does not recalibrate automatically. We have to intentionally come and experience worship to experience that kind of recalibration. It is a manual operation, not an automatic one. And so that is what happens with Asaph. So this passage is about a fundamental contrast. The contrast that we see in this passage is the contrast between commodity and communion. Because Asaph's problem that he sees is that he had the wrong idea about what blessing is. He thought that blessing, that peace, that shalom was about the good life that these people were experiencing. Think about our ideas culturally about the good life. The good life is spending Saturdays and Sundays out at the sandbar with a cooler full of natterdays and sunscreen on. It's, it's about going to the mountains and having that annual ski trip. It's about children who are obedient and docile and happy and smart. The good life that we want to experience is all about easy relationship, electric cars, and houses in good zip codes. When we think about the good life, that is what we think about. And all of those things, every single one of them, is a commodity. It's something to be bought and sold. And if we continue to think of those things as blessing, it will distort our reality. It will make us question who God is. But if instead, if instead of boat trips and ski trips, of easy relationships and electric cars, instead of those things, we begin to see that the blessing of God is not stuff, but is rather nearness to God. (laughs) Then the way that we perceive everything else around us is going to change. Because if I think that the real peace that we're after is not the stuff that the wicked have, but rather the nearness to God that is available to us in Jesus, I'm going to perceive those other people differently. I'm going to begin to perceive my life differently. Because all of a sudden, I understand that the good life is not the easy life. The good life is the life that is near to Jesus. The good life is not something that I can tangibly touch. It has trials. It has heartbreaks. And through all of those heartbreaks and trials, through sickness and struggles, what I have is a Savior who loves me and is near to me. Because at the end of the day, what Asaph saw in the temple was a picture of what Jesus was coming to do. Yes, in the death of the cows, the turtle doves, and all of the other sacrificial animals, the lambs, he saw that the 
that the prosperity and the shalom of the wicked is temporary. That there is another end in sight for them, even if we don't see it right now. But, but even more formatively, even more significantly, what Asaph saw there was a shadow of the Redeemer who was coming. Who wouldn't make a sacrifice that had to be repeated, but rather would make a sacrifice once and for all, for all of the envy that was in his heart, for all of the ways that he misperceived the world around him, that Jesus was coming to forgive him and die for him. So what we need, church, in order to perceive the world around us properly is to be formed by worship. And I don't just mean singing songs, but I mean the whole thing. I don't just mean church attendance. But we need to be formed by the continual reminder of the beauty of God, the depth of our sin, and the gulf that our sin creates between us and God. We need to be reminded that Jesus gracefully bridges that gulf and makes us sons and daughters of God and doesn't just adopt us, but rather invites us to his table. Think about how that works out in your life and mine. Think about how special and significant it is when somebody invites you into their house and cooks for you and takes care of you and doesn't spare any expense. And when the wine bottle runs out, they uncork another. And when you think you're done, out comes the dessert. That lavish feasting, that is what Jesus offers to us. And that is what forms us so that we perceive reality in a new and different way. So that all of a sudden, we're not concerned with the prosperity of the wicked. We're concerned with the proximity of ourselves to Jesus. That becomes our driving force. We begin to see the true shalom of God, which is our relationship with him through Jesus. And here's where things get interesting. Imagine that city church becomes a community shaped not by envy, not by what I can hold on to, but becomes a community shaped by that welcoming invitation to strangers and those who are different. You see, that is what we are called to do. It's not just to turn away from our envy, not just to recalibrate our heart with worship, but then out of that recalibrated heart, begin to go out and share that same sort of loving invitation to those who we work with, to those who we go to the gym with, to those who we see around our neighborhood and in our building. We are recalibrated, not just so that we are near to God, but so that we extend his invitation to those around us. City Church, may we be recalibrated and reformed this morning.